So today we're going to begin looking at the Gospel of Noah, and I figured we could all begin with a song. I don't know if you know this song, but just join in if you know it. Kids, I'm sure, well, they all left, so never mind. <laughs> never mind, we won't sing it. I was going to sing, the Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's an old standard, you know? We'll, we'll pass that up. But we are looking at the Gospel of Noah as part of our Gospel in Genesis series. Title for today's message is The Broken Heart of God. Noah's story continues the story of redemption that we've been looking at in Genesis. God created the world, all that's within. He created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the garden. He gave them the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate. Adam failed. Sin entered the world. God removed Adam and Eve from the garden, keeping them from the tree of life. And humanity has chased after the garden ever since. So we come to chapter 6, the next major piece of the story. But I actually want to start uh, back a chapter. Genesis 5 gives us a list of Adam's descendants. It's interesting to note that though Noah was 10 generations removed from Adam, Adam would have lived long enough to know Methuselah, Noah's grandfather, and Lamech, Noah's father, though Adam died before Noah was born. So, just for reference, Adam lived somewhere around 950 years, according to the scriptures. Genesis 5, 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, pretty young guy, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Lamech named his newborn son Noah, which means rest, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. I think what this is pointing to is that perhaps Lamech believed that his son would have been the promised seed that was spoken of in chapter 3 the serpent crusher, the new Adam who would undo what the first Adam had brought into the world through his sin. This shows us that Adam's descendants seem to at least know of the promised seed, at least those of Seth's line. Uh, One of the stories that we're kind of passing over is the story of Cain and Abel, but Adam and Eve had more children. Seth is the This thing is not going to hold together, I think. We'll see. We'll see what happens. One of these days we'll replace this. Seth is the third son of Adam and Eve, and he was the one that out out of his descendants we find Enoch, and we find now Noah. So it seems at least in their line they knew of the promised seed, and perhaps some of them looked for that promise, even though as Hebrews chapter 11 showed us recently, they did not receive it in their lifetime. It should also cause us to take special note of Noah's story. Though not the promised seed, he will point us forward, as I've mentioned before, as an arrow to the life and work of Jesus the Christ. And so today we'll unpack Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to look at two things in this chapter, corruption and judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can come together to worship together, to partake of the Lord's table together, to 
sing and to hear the word. Lord, I ask that as we do hear from you this morning, that our faith would be built up and edified, that we would go from here rejoicing in the good news of Jesus Christ. We bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at corruption first, and let's do that by reading Genesis 6, 1 through 7. So when, ba- when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. All right. Let's talk about it. Because I know that the only thing some of y'all are wanting to know is what is Caleb going to say about the Nephilim? So let's dive right in. First, I want to say this. You can throw out the History Channel documentaries on the Bible. If you do enjoy them, just know that they get most things wrong. Now, this part of the text is not the main point of the text. And I think that should be something we understand when digging into it. It's there, it matters, but it's not the primary concern. So let's not lose sleep over who the Nephilim are. I believe as with most most things in scripture, when it comes to the narrative history, we should interpret these things in the simplest way possible. Though there are a few, quite a few, interpretations of this text, the one that seems likeliest to me is that the sons of God are those of the line of Seth, and that the daughters of man are the daughters of either Cain's line or Seth's line. In the original text, there were no chapter divisions, and so this paragraph that we see in chapter 6 would have immediately followed all the genealogy that we see in chapter 5, Um, numbers versus chapters, that was all added later. And so sometimes those divisions are somewhat unhelpful. And so it seems that Moses, who wrote Genesis, in case you didn't know, Moses wrote Genesis, is saying that these sons that we see in chapter 6 of our Bibles are the same as the sons in chapter 5. They are from the line of Seth. It doesn't seem likely that they were fallen angels, Some argue that the phrase sons of God must mean that they're angels. But elsewhere in scripture, God's people are called sons of God, children of God, things like that. Because much of chapter 6 is devoted to detailing corruption and judgment, some interpret the way this paragraph is written to imply that the sons of Seth's line acted sinfully. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took any they chose. They saw they were attractive and they took. They didn't choose wisely or in accordance to God's ways. They didn't marry someone who was following God's commands. They just took. And they did so unwisely. And in doing so, could have perhaps done so sinfully by maybe even taking women against her will. So, I don't know if that is totally the interpretation that we should have, but there are some who believe that that is what is being said there. 
In verse 3, Moses writes, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. It's believed that this is not a warning of judgment, uh, that this is a warning of judgment to come. And it's laid out here uh, in all of chapter 6, this warning. It's not a limitation on how old humans would age. Uh, Because even after the flood, for a period of time, uh, people like Abraham and Isaac, they lived well into their uh, late hundreds. Is that a thing? They lived to like 175, 180. Verse 4 speaks of the Nephilim. Some translate this word to be giants because of its use later in the book of Numbers. And certainly that's a possible translation. However, again, I think in this situation, that's not necessarily what's being said. If these were giants, then they were all destroyed in the flood. And that wouldn't explain why we see giants later. So the giants that we see after the flood are giants for other reasons. I'm not a geneticist. I can barely pronounce that word. Nephilim can be translated in other ways, and so some have taken it to mean that humanity, these, these people, uh, were just kind of imposing figures oppressive and violent, that they were evil in their ways uh, that caused others to shrink back in immediate fear at the sight of them. So to sum it up, what I'm saying is, whether they're giants or whether these are men of oppressive means, whether they're violent, um, people who ruled over others, um, whatever is happening in this passage Essentially, what we're seeing is that man multiplied, babies were being born, and there was a lot of evil in the earth. These children being born uh, had no regard for God, and hence we come to this section in Genesis 6 where we start to see what that looked like, the corruption, the destruction, all that's taking place. And so perhaps Moses is simply bridging the gap of how we end up with God looking at his creation and being grieved in his heart. In verses 5 through 7, we see the depravity of man. Wickedness was great on the earth, and every intention of his thoughts was only evil. We see how universal and pervasive sin was. It's not that sin spread from person to person when an act of sin took place, like it was a contagious disease. Sin is in the heart. And so what we're seeing here is that the nature of sin was controlling their every actions. The sin nature at work. This corruption of God's creation grieved the very heart of God. This word translated regret in verse 6 is sometimes rendered as repented. But I don't think our understanding of these words, repent or regret, really helps us to understand what is being said here. I believe this is showing us the complexity of God's emotions in this moment. His grief over sin. See, God's good creation has been marred by sin and corruption. This corruption, as we'll soon see, is heading towards self-destruction. And so this causes God to suffer. It causes his heart to be broken and full of sorrow over it. Perhaps me saying that it caused God to suffer causes you a little discomfort to think of. Because God is above all this. 
He doesn't suffer. His heart doesn't break, right? Well, that's not what the text shows. The text shows us that God's heart is broken over the corruption that we see. Now, I say this about God's grief over sin, and yet I still believe it was all part of his plan. I uphold the doctrine of God's sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty is God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. Providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. And I believe that God has a plan through all of this. Scripture says elsewhere that Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. So, all of this is part of God's plan, and yet he's still filled with grief over it. He's still filled with sorrow over it. And if you're wondering if there's other examples of that, we just have only to look at Jesus and his friend Lazarus. And when Jesus approached Lazarus' tomb, after delaying himself purposely for four days... He walks up to the tomb, knowing he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And what does the text tell us? It's one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, because it's the shortest. What does it say? Jesus wept. So Jesus, the Son of God, who is God, grieved, knowing he was the resurrection and the life. God decides here, back to our text, to destroy all living things. He's not going to fully destroy the earth, but all that is alive on it. Many of us at one time or another have objected to this type of judgment. We might have asked, why did God, who is in control of everything, have to destroy these people? Why did he allow so much evil and suffering? Couldn't he have just stopped it? Well, this is what's called a logical fallacy. It supposes that whatever God's reason for allowing this to happen has to be something that we can think of as a good reason. And since we cannot think of any good reason why, it must therefore prove that God either has no control, he's not sovereign, or he doesn't care because he's not good. And so this is a fallacy. Just because you and I can't think of a good reason doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. He's God and we are not. Whatever God's reason is for allowing this to happen according to his plans, it must be good. What scripture will show us if we follow this story of redemption to its end is that God allows history to unfold, and yes, that includes evil and suffering, all at great cost to himself. God, who has known in in eternity past nothing but harmony, shalom, peace, love, creates this world and would eventually send his son to die alone and naked on a cross. God could have stopped evil and suffering. But he didn't. He allowed it, though it cost him infinite evil, and suffering. God could have stopped his own suffering, but he didn't. So God's reasoning, which will be fully seen in the new heavens and the new earth, must be so great that he would endure such terrible suffering. This word grieved in verse 6 carries the idea of deepest frustration, grief, sorrow, pain, and unfulfilled longing. 
God has so bound himself to his creation, to you and I, that their sin has caused him to suffer pain. We are seeing the broken heart of God. God said to the prophet Isaiah of his people in Isaiah 49, 15, and 16, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God has so bound himself to his people, just as a mother binds herself to her nursing infant or the son of her womb. He says he has engraved you on his palms. It's not that he took a pencil and just jotted your name down. It's engraven on his hands. This is the depth of the longing that he, the creator of the universe, the transcendent God, has for you. We see here that the violence and sin of man had gotten so pervasive that judgment was necessary. Now, if you don't believe in judgment, then there is no answer for all the violence that we see. And violence wins. And so judgment was necessary. But before we see how pervasive this corruption is, we have sort of a break in the story. Verses 8 through 10. And verse 8 is really the key verse of this whole passage. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah found grace. Before anything is mentioned of his obedience, of his character, of his righteousness, of his blamelessness, we see that Noah received the gift of grace. Favor is grace. Grace is favor. Writer Chad Bird says this, Noah grew up in a world corrupt in the sight of God and filled with violence. He, however, found grace in the eyes of the Lord, was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Many children's Bible story books put it this way. People everywhere were bad, but Noah was good. But Noah was good not because he wasn't bad, but because he believed in the good one whom his father had mistaken him for, the promised seed. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because faith planted him in the apple of the Lord's eye, the son of the father. Amen. Let's look a little bit closer at the judgment that God is declaring. Verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God had charged Adam and Eve with the calling of reigning and ruling over the earth on God's behalf as his representative. But humanity aggressively and violently asserted their rule over others, including animal life, all living creatures. 
But God has a solution to the problem of this corruption. And God will destroy life with the waters of judgment. It will stop the human violence. And Noah's family will be rescued through the waters of judgment as well. This word corruption really means destruction. It's actually the same Hebrew word um, used a little bit later when it says that God will destroy. So what we see is that the people were being self-destroyed. And so God would destroy the destruction. This is God intervening and stopping the evil and suffering. And in judging, he is redeeming. In judging, he is rescuing. And in judging, he is saving. And yes, it's horrific. But had God not intervened, there would have been nothing left. What I believe is happening is that Satan is attempting to prevent the promised seed from coming and crushing his head. And so he works and he works and works to bring about humanity's end. Humanity's self-destruction. But the one thing that he could not stop was God's grace. Because Noah found favor. God would preserve his promised seed. God was preserving his plan. And we see this happening again throughout the Old Testament. In the land of Canaan, there were all these tribes that, uh, had they been left in place, they would have destroyed God's people, but they also would have destroyed themselves along in the process. They were on a path heading towards self-destruction. But had they been left and destroyed God's people, they would have destroyed the promised seed. And so God again intervenes, he stops evil and suffering, and he preserves his promised seed. They were evil and violent just as the people were before the flood. And so it is a mercy. It's a strange mercy, if you will, but it is a mercy that God judges and brings an end to the self-destruction. Now here, what we're seeing is that God's solution to the problem is not simply judgment and salvation, like they're two different things. It's not even that salvation happens despite judgment. We are actually seeing that God will save through judgment. And in the text we're looking at today, the solution is given to Noah, but we won't actually get the full picture of it till chapter 7. And so, come back next week. <laughs> but in our text today, God gives some more instructions to Noah, and he gives a promise. Beginning in verse 14, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And I still can't get the song out of my head. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground. I suppose that includes spiders. According to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So God gives Noah instructions for how to build the ark 
and how to fill it. According to the ESV study Bible and modern measurements, the ark would have been around 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. For some perspective, I have an image for you. This is not the ark. (laughs) This is Royal Caribbean's icon of the seas. It's nearly 1,200 feet long. It's got 20 decks. And apparently it's a nonstop party. It's a big boat. But Noah and his family didn't have a fleet of uh, cruise ships. They didn't have all the modern marvels that we have today to be able to build such a thing. But it's still quite impressive to build a boat that is 450 feet long. Back to our text. God tells Noah that every living thing on the earth will die except what is brought into the ark. His family and the animals that are in the ark will live. God promises to establish his covenant with Noah. What was that covenant that he promised? Well, we'll see more of that over the next several weeks. But what God is promising to do is to preserve Noah and his family. And he bases this promise to Noah on the covenant that he will establish once the floodwaters subside. This covenant would be to preserve creation until the final judgment. So amid this flood of judgment, God would preserve human human life, he'll preserve animals. And yet all of this, this preservation, God keeping Noah and his family, does not change the nature of humans. So Noah takes animals into the ark. Noah takes food into the ark. Noah takes his family into the ark. And Noah takes sin into the ark. He and his sons would pass that sin nature on to their descendants, just as they had received it from Adam. But God would graciously use this flood as a blessing to restart life, to preserve his promise of the Messiah to come, because Noah, despite what his father hoped, was not the promise. But he is a type of the promise. And I believe that Noah trusted in the promise to come. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah obeyed because of grace. He didn't receive this grace because he obeyed. Grace came first. Noah believed God's promise. He took God at his word. God says, trust me. And he did. Noah trusted him. Despite what he didn't see at that time. Noah may not have understood who the promised seed would be, but he knew that he could take God at his word. And so he did. He obeyed. It's possible um, that the construction of the ark took anywhere from about 65 to 75 years for Noah and his sons and perhaps some hired laborers to build the ark. The timeline may be this, that at some point God said there would be 120 years remaining. Several years later, Noah and his wife have a son. About a hundred years from his son's birth, the flood happens. Now, a lot of people believe that they didn't start building the, the ark until his sons were grown. And so, 65, 75 years or so it took for the ark to be built. And then the flood came. 
We've often assumed that during this time, Noah was mocked and made fun of, ridiculed by the surrounding people. But there's actually no scriptural evidence of that. Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said they were just living their lives. Just kind of normal, day to day, until the flood came. Peter tells us that Noah was a herald of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5, if he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And the verse, the paragraph or sentence there would continue, but stopping there. I think the writer of Hebrews gives us a clue to what being a herald of righteousness looked like. We just talked about this passage, but Hebrews 11:7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his house, household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah's faith led him to take God at his word. He obeyed God and he built the ark. And this faith being the only one to take God at his word, the only one to believe God, look for that promise, it's that faith which condemned the world and proclaimed righteousness to those around him. And so we can't be certain as to whether or not Noah was mocked. Maybe. We don't know whether Noah stood at the construction site and shouted to the masses. We don't know. But what can be certain, what we can be certain of is that God sent the waters of judgment. That these waters both crushed those who didn't believe and those same waters rescued Noah and his family who were in the ark. And so God saved Noah through judgment. To wrap this up, my wife is really smart. We'll see you later. (laughs) She actually didn't tell me to say that. I actually believe it. She has said that sometimes the way we see the gospel in the scriptures is by seeing it clearly as it jumps off the page to us. But sometimes we have to see it in the negative spaces. A good artist knows how to use the negative space, the empty space on a canvas for their creation. Chapter 6 of Genesis is setting us up for one of the clearest portraits of the gospel in all the scriptures. But I believe what we're seeing here in this chapter is the negative spaces. So in a way, the text here that we're reading about corruption and judgment, uh, what we're seeing is that empty space where it cries out for the good news. It's showing us the need for salvation from outside of ourselves. There's a lot about sin, corruption, destruction, death, and judgment. But there's also this promise of rescue. We also see the gospel, as we saw earlier, in the broken heart of God. See, God wasn't passively dealing with humanity, hoping that it turns out okay, and just kind of feeling bad about himself. It wasn't just kind of feeling bad over the way things turned out. No, he was actively involved in his creation to bring about his purposes. And Isaiah tells us that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. His heart was indeed broken, 
but he worked to bring salvation through judgment. He worked to preserve his promise of Messiah to come so that one day his broken creation could be fully restored. And this flood will serve as a pattern of salvation through judgment. But we fully realize that and see it in the cross. Chapter 6 tells us God's heart was broken. But on the cross, his heart was broken completely through. When Jesus died, they thrust a spear into his side and blood and water flowed out. Why? It's because his heart was literally broken. Whereas in Genesis 6, we see God beginning to suffer for sin. On the cross, Jesus fully suffered for sin. And he did so in your place. He took your suffering onto himself. Why would he do that for you? Because again, God is fully committed to you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he has bound himself to you. And so, in his love, he died for you. He suffered for you. He, he sought to bring about an end of the self-destruction that humanity was bent on. And his death was the only way. The flood shows this commitment to his creation. He cares about the world he made, the people he created. He cared about the animals, the fish, the creeping things, and the plants. Violence, oppression, sin caused his heart to fill with grief and sorrow. It's opposed to who he is. And so from before the beginning, the Godhead created a plan a way to rescue and redeem. And he preserved that plan. In comparison to all world religions, Christianity is the only one where God gets not only into the middle of it, he gets his hands in it, but he seeks to bring restoration here. In all other world, creation, uh, world religions, it's all about getting out of here. It's all about escaping this world. But God is rebuilding this world and rebuilding this creation with the new heavens and the new earth. The flood shows us that God would get involved in the middle of it. Through his work on the cross, Jesus has opened the way up to you. And he offers his grace freely. He offers his salvation freely and forgiveness of sins. He is the truer and the better ark. And the door to this ark is still open today. Believe the good news of his death and resurrection. Come into the ark. Believer, trust his promise. Take him at his word. You are safe and secure, not because of your strength, not because of your ability, not because of your commitment, but because of the ark. I think we often think of Noah and his family as being, you know, just brave and full of all sorts of commitment. And I don't know, maybe they were. But I think if it was me stepping into the ark, though I had God's promise, I'd probably be trembling. I've been through hurricanes, I've been through floods. It's not a fun time. I trust God, but there's a part of me that's still fearful. 
And so for 40 days and 40 nights, as we'll see next week, Noah and his family were safe in the ark, but perhaps they trembled. Their safety wasn't built upon their ability to be brave. It was built on the strength of the ark. Brother and sister, your ability to endure isn't based on your strength or your commitment. It's built on the safety of Jesus Christ. He is strong. We're weak. He is secure. And because he's secure, we're secure in him. You are in Christ.